A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Shane Gibson, co-founder and chief product officer at Agile Data IO, as well as an Agile Data Coach. Shane's last eight years have been about taking Agile practices and patterns and applying them to data as an Agile Data Coach. And those patterns required a lot of tweaks to make them work for data. You know, if you're taking these patterns that we've learned from software engineering and applying them to data, it takes a lot more effort to actually apply them to data. They aren't one-to-one. A big learning from that work is that when applying patterns in Agile in general, and specifically in data, each organization, even each team, needs to test and tweak slash iterate on patterns. And that patterns can start valuable, lose value, and then become valuable again. Shane gave the example of daily standups to drive collaboration as a forcing function, but then they can lose value when that collaboration becomes a standard team practice. If there is a disruption to the team, you know, a new member or, you know, there's a reorg or something like that, where collaboration is no longer standard practice, daily standups could get, become valuable again. So how do we apply these agile concepts to data? especially when we think about data practices and patterns as kind of we're going to do this specific thing going forward. Currently, Shane sees no real patterns emerging in the data mesh space. And I kind of agree with that. It's still pretty early. Patterns often take five to eight years to develop. And data mesh is what, maybe 12 months into even moderately broad adoption. And 
data mesh is, has such a wide practice area. There are many kind of sub practices within that where patterns will need to kind of emerge. And so, you know, that's going to take time and there are so many places. So it's kind of hard that it's not, okay, we're all focusing on one specific thing. But that lack of patterns makes it quite hard for even those who want to be on the leading edge of implementing data mesh instead of the true leading edge, uh, because having to invent everything yourself is, is taxing work. So we need companies to really take existing patterns, iterate on them, and then big em- emphasis on this, tell the world what worked and what didn't. If people aren't sharing their patterns, that's what's going to make it hard to adopt data mesh for many organizations for you know, many years to come. And then you won't be able to, if you're doing it and you're not sharing your learnings, then maybe that organization isn't going to feel like they're uh, able to really see the patterns well enough to implement it themselves. And you could have learned from them as well. So it really does kind of snowball if everybody's helping each other out. Shane believes that it will likely be pretty hard for many organizations, or at least many parts of large organizations, to give application developers in the domains the responsibility of creating data products. If your domains aren't already quite technically capable in building software products, it's going to be very hard for them to really handle the data needs when you think about data mesh. So looking at domains that are using kind of large out-of-the-box enterprise platforms or they're just kind of using an amalgamation of SaaS solutions instead of rolling their own software, will they really have the capability to manage data as a product? If those domains don't have the most complex of data, maybe, but if there is kind of complex data that you need out of those domains, are they really mature enough to handle it? I think it's a very valid question. We don't really have a lot of information on it just yet. To really be agile using capital A agile methodologies, you need to adopt the capital A agile mindset and not just patterns and practices in in Shane's view. Agile is really about experimenting with a pattern and either iterating to make it better or throwing it out. It's not about being precious. As mentioned earlier, you should also throw out patterns that were effective and aren't helping you anymore. You need to do the same at the team and organizational level if you're going to successfully implement something like data mesh. Your teams and your organization overall are like uh, living, changing, evolving organisms. Treat them as such. A very important point Shane made is data mesh isn't a solution. It needs to, at most, be a way of approaching your data and analytical challenges of organization, but with a true purpose in mind. The purpose isn't implementing data mesh. Data mesh isn't the solution. It's something to use to get to a goal around your business goals or or whatever. The purpose is is that business objective or challenge, and data mesh is helping you tackle that. Also, data mesh is not the right solution for many organizations, especially smaller ones or ones that don't have highly complex data needs. Those organizations should review data mesh and understand the principles and work towards some of them, but their real challenge isn't the centralized team being a bottleneck. So don't take on the pain of decentralizing to be kind of hip and trendy. For those who haven't really dealt with capital A Agile, a quote unquote fun potential learning per Shane is that there isn't really a great pattern for measuring if 
uh, another pattern is working. Proving how well something is working is kind of impossible in a lot of ways. So a large part of it is really feel. We, we chose this pattern to improve collaboration or whatever. Do we believe our collaboration has improved? If yes, great. Let's try to iterate and improve it a bit more. If no, or our collaboration has even gone down, get rid of it. For Shane, when evaluating if you are effective in your agile methodology, ask, does, does the organization empower this team to work effectively? You will probably need to look at this on a team-by-team basis and repeatedly ask this question over time. It's not, we empowered them you know, six months ago, so they, they automatically remain empowered. Trying to scale that capital A agile to fit all teams in an organization is often uh, an anti-pattern. If you're trying to fit it, the exact same patterns to all of the teams, it's, it's just not going to work from what people have, have seen in the agile space. And if you are in a hierarchical company, adapting those agile patterns alone is probably not going to really change the way, way you work in the long run. You need to break the hierarchies in some way. For Shane, there is a big question that Data Mesh has yet to answer. Can we really move the data production ownership to the application developers? He thinks if we look at DevOps and how developers took on necessary work for testing and CICD, we can. But then the even bigger question is how? How can we map the language of what needs to get done to the software engineering semantics. For Shane, one thing that he really kind of hit on was the idea of a proof of concept or POC is is just broken in in a lot of organizations. We need to rethink it entirely, especially for data mesh. What are you really trying to prove out? He believes that there are typically two types of POCs and most default to type one when potential beneficiaries or kind of the consumers expect the output of type two. In type one POCs, you are trying to prove out a high level hypothesis that has lots of uncertainty. It's about experimentation and doing it in a quick and dirty way that is not ready for production. And the output of type one is all about proving out the hypothesis, not that production ready result. So if you're doing that with data mesh, it might be that you're trying to prove out the data set, that this data set is valuable rather than you're trying to prove out you can actually do data mesh and that you, you're you able to build the muscle to actually figure out, you know, how would you build data products? How would you build, build your platform? Type two of, of POCs is a minimum viable product or a minimum valuable product. What can we strip away from our end goal to get to something that can be used and is mostly productionalizable? literally what is the minimum that is viable. It is about approving the capability to deliver and delivering something of value sooner. So ask yourself, what are you really trying to prove in your POC? Is it type one, type two, and communicate that really well. Shane finished on three points. Empower your teams to change the way they work. Stop vendor and methodology washing data mesh, you know, no vendor, you don't sell a data mesh. Stop saying that. Regarding data mesh specifically, share what patterns you are trying to adopt, why you chose them, and what is working and not working. Data mesh can only evolve to something really great if we work together and share more information. 
So a few key takeaways for me from this episode were agile methodology is about finding patterns that might work, trying those out and deciding whether you should iterate or toss them out. It's going to be hard to directly apply those software engineering patterns to data, but we should look for inspiration from software engineering and then look to tweak those patterns. Anytime you look at a pattern that you might want to adopt or evaluate, if a pattern is working for you, ask yourself, will this slash does this empower the team to work more effectively? Third point would be applying patterns is a bit of a squishy business. Get comfortable that you won't be able to exactly measure if something is working, but also have an end goal in mind for adopting a pattern. What are you trying to achieve? And is this pattern likely to help you achieve that? that intentionality. And then the last one, again, is share your patterns to not only help others, but to get feedback for yourself and maybe ideas to iterate your pattern further and improve what you're doing as well. So with that, let's go ahead and jump to the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Super, super excited for today's episode. I've got Shane Gibson here. He's co-founded a startup, and we'll, we'll talk about that kind of at the end that's in this uh, in the, the agile data space in general, and, and I think can be helpful to a lot of people in uh, data mesh. But really what we're here talking about, he's here as um, an agile data coach. He's somebody who's really seen a lot around data patterns and agile patterns. So um, I had originally asked Shane on because he's commented in a lot of places on LinkedIn and and things. And he always has an interesting perspective. And it's always one that I think is a pragmatic perspective. And there's always a little bit of a a tinge of he's seen some some SHIT. Um, He's seen some stuff out there uh, that has uh, shaped his view of why we should do certain things and why we shouldn't. And so, you know, we got to talking and, and I think there's a lot of really, really interesting patterns and things that are going to emerge from this conversation. So Shane, if you don't mind giving folks a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can kind of jump into uh, some of the different topics that we were looking at uh, discussing. Yeah, I'd love to. So, hey, thanks for having me on the show. I've been listening to it for a while. So I really appreciate the time you take to get, you know, people on to the show to talk about what's happening in the data mesh space. Um, so for me, I've been working in the, the data analytics world for nigh on 30 years. I mean, when I started out, we were back in the days where we called it business intelligence and or, you know, even uh, executive information systems right at the beginning there. Um, so I've, I've had quite a varied uh, series of roles over my life, which I've enjoyed. So I started off uh, pretty much in vendor land. I worked for some of the, the large um, vendors, uh, US-based ones, but but um, living in New Zealand uh, for 10, 15 years. And, and my, my role there was what I call pre-sales. 
uh, typically called uh, sales engineering these days. So the way I articulated it was my role was worked with the sales guy to convince the customer that the product we had somehow met the need they had uh, and get into the next uh, level of the sales cycle which typically involved the consultants coming in after us and uh, then swearing at us about what we promised the product could do and how the hell could they make that work. So, uh, you know, we, we, we helped customers, we did solve some problems, but there was a little bit of that corporate sales um, stuff in there. After that, uh, I spent 10 years where I, where I founded a consulting company. So your typical I'm on seat consulting company where we'd go in, uh, we'd understand the customer problem, we'd figure out how technology in the data space could help them, uh, and then we'd help them implement it. And really enjoyed that for a while. But as part of that, I stumbled across this thing called Agile. So as the founder, I was lucky enough to experiment within the consulting company uh, with Agile practices ourselves. And then even luckier, where some customers uh, gave me the privilege of experimenting with them and their teams together about how we could take agile patterns and apply them in the data analytics space. Um, so there was lots of, of uh, content and, and proven practices around apps or application engineering but in the data and analytics space, there was always some some weird stuff that meant we couldn't just apply those patterns out of the box. We had to tweak them given the context of the organization or the data or the teams we were working with. So I've spent the last eight years being lucky enough to work with those teams. And then, as you said, uh, three years ago, as part of that, we I started up, a, co-founded a, a, a software as a service data company um, to combine both a platform and a, a way of working together to see if we could strengthen line and apply those patterns in a better way. Yeah, I think what we're seeing with data mesh in general is any pattern that that came from, we, we need to learn from what came from the software engineering realm, but we do need to change it and tweak it. We can't, people want to copy paste, right, from, okay, we, we've been doing this pattern on this other side, so we can just copy paste and, and that's just not working, Right. Yeah, and, and so there's some challenges with patterns, right? The first challenge is actually how do you describe a pattern? Um, because a pattern has value in a certain context. So we can describe the pattern in a technical way. We can describe the pattern in a process way. But what's really hard is to describe the context of where it has value and where it's probably risky. And then the second part for me is every team should experiment with the patterns. You know, there is no out-of-the-box set of patterns that work for every organization on day one. So the goal is to help teams find a pattern that may solve the problem they have in the context they have, and then help them experiment with it to prove it does or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, throw it away. It's not a pattern that works for you right now. If it does, cool. Lock it in, keep using it until it loses its value, and work on the next problem that you want to solve. Do you, do you have any, uh, just off the, the top of your head, any any good kind of rubrics or any good ways to measure if this is right for you or, or if we just need to tweak it versus, you know, what what's baby and what's bathwater or is it all bathwater or? Uh, oh, good question. Uh, it depends on the team and the context. Um, you know, we will see a pattern uh, provide value for a while and then often we'll see it lose its value. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we talk about uh, in Scrum, you know, when we're doing batch-based delivery or iterations, 
we talk about the idea of daily stand-ups, right? So it's a, a well-proven pattern in the Scrum world that everybody gets together for 15 minutes every day to talk about the work they're doing. And that collaboration has high value. So if you're not doing that, that's a really simple pattern to implement uh, that has value, typically. Now, what we're doing is we're creating a forcing factor. What we're saying is uh, normally teams don't talk enough, right? They don't collaborate enough as they work, and that causes us problems. So let's force you to do that every day for 15 minutes, right? Let's give you some muscle memory. But that pattern, you know, we, we should be able to move on from that pattern at some stage. So mature teams, you'll watch them. They collaborate every two minutes, right? They collaborate constantly during the day. And when that happens, we can actually say, well, the pattern of a daily stand-up probably has little value for us now. So let's throw it away, right? Because we're, we're achieving the goal of constant collaboration. Now, what will happen is we may uh, change the way the teams work. We may change the team's membership. Uh, we may bring other people into the team. And we may have to go back to that forcing pattern again, right, of daily stand-ups to retrain that muscle memory, to get that value back of that daily collaboration. Uh, and then lose it again, right? So it's uh, a pattern is, is an interesting thing, right? It can be applied and uh, unapplied and applied multiple times. But the goal is it's a, a solution to a problem given a certain context and by applying it, it has value. So that's what we look for. But, but I just want my one checkbox answer. Like, why, why can't you just give me a checkbox answer as to exactly, right? Exactly. Uh, no. So, so that that's easy, right? You uh, you look for the vendor that tells you it does everything you want out of the box. You find one of those shiny suit consulting companies that have their little roadmap methodology, and you pay them some money. And uh, maybe your team are happier. Maybe you deliver more value to your customers. Uh, maybe you solve your problems. Uh, I'm a better fan of working with a great bunch of people who craft their own way of working. It's more fun, uh, more successful. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not a great fan of uh, out-of-the-box methodologies, as you could probably tell. Which I think, you know, kind of the the topic at hand of Data Mesh is Jamac isn't. I think a lot of the people in the community are also not for the out-of-the-box methodologies, but we don't even necessarily have the inklings of the patterns right now, right? Like, we don't even have that, like, that idea around daily stand-ups. It is very, very early days. You know, Jamak talked about on a, a call she did that um, she didn't want to have to write her book now. She wished that she we had five years of seeing like this emerge before she really had to write V1 of the book. But the book is is really good for for setting your kind of foundational knowledge and understanding. But like, how, how do you think about in a world with little patterns or low pattern or you know, just emerging patterns where we don't know <laughs> which are um, good and kind of persistent patterns or long-term patterns or all of that. Like, how can we start to think about moving forward? So I think what we, we should do is we should pick up a pattern that already exists, uh, we iterate it, and then we do the world a kindness by publishing what we learned. And then somebody else will pick that pattern up and iterate it again. A lot of the things that we talk about in data mesh are not new, right? There are, there, in my view, and you know, and I'll be clear, I am to an age now where I'm opinionated on many things, and data mesh is one of those. 
So the things I like about Data Mesh, I like the core principles. They're principles that teams I have worked with for many years have strived to achieve. Uh, I like the idea that it's picked up a bunch of concepts that have been around for years and put them together and said, if we apply these concepts together, there is some value in there. Um, But I think what happens is everybody starts vendor washing it or methodology washing it. And that's the problem. So, you know, a pattern that's been around for years is, is dimensional modeling. And why has it been so successful? It's been successful because Kimball was great at sharing that pattern in many ways, right? Wrote books that we could buy and read and understand and apply those patterns. Gave training courses where people could come and learn those patterns with with examples. And, you know, again, it's really interesting looking at this world of analytics engineering now where everybody's going back to dimensional modeling as if it's a new thing where it's been around for years. So I think there's a bunch of patterns that we have lost as kind of uh, the ground truth, and they're coming back, which is really interesting for me to watch. Um, Why did we lose them? Well, we lost them because of the big data bollocks. Right, we we were in a world in the data space where we were iterating on the ways we worked. We were making things slightly better. We were solving some hard problems, and then out of the left field came a piece of technology that had value for certain organisations with certain contexts: the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. And somehow we washed that technology, that way of working, and said, if you're an enterprise customer with you know SAP you can do big data. And it's like the context was wrong. And what I'm frustrated at the moment is I'm seeing that happen with data mesh. I'm seeing the vendor and the methodology washing, uh, the solutions coming to the party. I'm seeing it being tried to be applied to organizations where if you looked at the context of that organization, it's probably not the initial fit. It's not an ideal organization to experiment with the, the data mesh approach. And yeah, again, one of my questions is, what is data mesh? Is it a concept? Is it an approach? Is it a method? Is it a bunch of patterns? You know, what what actually is it if we had to describe it? Um, so yeah, that's my view. Well, and, and I think there's this. Um, I, I don't think you. I think you have when you and I were talking about this. I don't think you're seeing this from like Jamac, but there's this assumption that Jamac is trying to, to sell it to everybody and that it is for everybody. And, and the number of times she's like, no, please don't like, this is bleeding edge. Uh, you know, um, I had somebody that was talking about, um, that if you don't have comfort and ambiguity, if your organization can't have comfort and ambiguity, there's way too much ambiguity. There's way too much places where you're going to try and fail. And if you can't accept that try and fail and learn and iterate model, if you don't have that kind of agile mindset in general, data mesh isn't for you right now. It might not ever be, but it's definitely three, five years too early for you. You have to be in that spot to to really be somebody that that's okay with that ambiguity and that trailblazing. And, and exactly what you said, if let's let's find these patterns, pick them up, dust them off and see if they, if they work, try and iterate on them. Yeah. So, so if I apply some context, right, let's, let's apply some of the context to the, the idea of data mesh and where, where you might want to experiment with it and where you might not want to. Um, so yeah, one of the things we talk about in data mesh is socio-technical, right? And so 
I get the idea that we're saying this is not just a technology, right? This is an organizational structure. It's a way of working. I'm not a great fan of the word socio-technical. I've seen it in the, in, the, in the book. I've seen it in you know team topology. For me, it's it's a language that I find cumbersome. It's not a natural word, right? It, it feels weird, technical, and, and therefore I'm not a great fan of it. But I love the idea that we have uh, some technology ideas and we have some organizational ideas, and they're both important, right? The, the technology and the ways of working, the organizational structure are key to adapting this change. So if I take that line and I say, okay, let's just look at the pure technical side of it, right? If we talk about taking the data skills uh, and we copy what our application development brethren did, right, our our software engineering um, domain, why can't we take those data skills and put them back into the software engineering domain? Right. So why do we why don't we remove this idea of you're a software engineer, you build a system, you then give me this data exhaust, and in my data domain, I'm gonna to have to pick up this exhaust and somehow munge it to make it useful. Um, and I really like that idea. But if you're gonna do that, you should, in my head, the context is you're an organization that's creating your own software. You're building your own first party data systems, right? You're creating your own software that runs your business. And if you're doing that, hell yeah, experiment with with coupling the software engineering and the data work together in a single team, right? And get those T skills and deliver that. And I think if you experiment that, you'll get high value. But if you're a large enterprise organization and you know, you've got out-of-the-box corporate enterprise platforms or you've got software as a service, you know, you're not in control of that software development. And so that pattern probably won't work for you. It's a high-risk pattern to experiment. But if you're a large organization that is uh, has a decentralized organizational structure and you have a centralized team, then hell yeah, experiment with the pattern around decentralizing your teams, right? Going to domain-driven teams for data. Uh, thinking about uh, a platform team that provides the platform as a product to those other teams. That organizational structure, right? That way of work might have value for you. So hell yeah, go and experiment with that in your organization. But don't think that applying the pattern of having data and software engineers working together is going to fit you because you're not developing software. So again, for me, it's a pattern has value in a context. What's your context? What problem you're trying to solve? What patterns may help you? Experiment with the pattern, apply it, see if it works. If it does, keep it. If it doesn't, throw it away. Yeah, I, I think the issue that I find in the psychology around data is if you didn't really, really think through how you were going to implement your enterprise data warehouse, if you didn't really thread that needle well, it started to fall apart pretty quickly and it didn't really deliver a lot of value, right? Like this is the the thing that a lot of people are worried about and they've taken that pattern or that, that maybe not pattern is the right word, but they've taken that you had to really hit that nail on the head. You had to thread that needle and they've tried to apply it to everything that is data related. And it's just, it's not the case. We have to, to set ourselves up to iterate. And that's what data mesh is about, being that flexible, scalable, agile. You need the ability to make changes and to test things out. And if they don't work, you know, throw them, <laughs> throw them in the bin, throw them out, move on, try the next thing. And 
I'm just finding that that people are still so locked into if I didn't get this dead on from the start, it caused way too many problems. And it's like, okay, but like, it, how do we get people out of that mindset? I, I, I haven't found anything that can kind of snap them out of that mindset. So, you know, for me, agile is a mindset, right? It's an expiring set of inspecting the way we work and the things we do, uh, experimenting where we have problems and then adapting things that solve those problems. That's what agile is. You know, a lot of people think agile is scrum. Uh, you know, Scrum is just one of the patterns. It's a good pattern, right? It, it, I use it all with teams all the time, but it's just a series of patterns. It's not the answer. So the other thing is when we're working with organizations and they say they want to do an agile transformation, the first thing I tend to ask them is, that's nice, but actually what problem would we want to solve, right? The goal of our work is not to implement agile. The goal of our work is to deliver value to our customers, and we want to change the way we do that. And Agile has ways that have been proven to help us in certain contexts. So that's the answer with Data Mesh, right? If a customer comes to you and says, I want to implement Data Mesh, you go, that's great. Now, what problem would you like to solve? Uh, and then how do we use some of the Data Mesh things that solve that problem? You know, Data Mesh is not an answer, right? It's a bunch of ideas to solve your some of your problems that we see regularly. Um so, yeah, I think, you know, you and I are aligned on that that idea in terms of, you know, if you get told a product is a data mesh product, it's bollocks. I'm also saying, you know, if you've got consultants who tell you that data mesh is a methodology that they can implement, you know, be careful. For me, it's if they come to you and say, data mesh has probably got some value. What problem do you want to solve? And let's see how data mesh can help solve that problem. Then I'm on board, right? That's a, That's a good approach. Yeah, I, I'm talking to uh, a lot of smaller companies that want to do data mesh. It's like, is de- if is the centralized data team your challenge? If it's not, if that's not the bottleneck, you know, if if you're saying, oh, well, we're we have really bad quality data and it's just always causing chaos, it's like you can shift that ownership left in a smaller team without decentralizing your data team. That's okay. That's not data mesh, but many people are still calling it data mesh, but it's it's not actually what data mesh is trying to accomplish. But data mesh isn't designed for that that complexity level or that scale. If you have that, if you don't have to, you know, coming from the distributed systems realm, if you don't have to distribute your systems, don't freaking distribute your systems. <laughs> and and if we look um you know, scaling agile is a problem we have not solved. You know, if I'm working with a team of nine people, they will rock it. If they are given self-organization capabilities, if they've got the T-skills they need, if they understand what the goal is, if they're enabled to remove their blockers, a team of five to nine people, they will just rock the work they do. They will deliver value up the kazoo. As soon as you say, let's have five of those teams, we now have a scaling problem. And in the agile world, we have not solved that, right? We've got some patterns that help, but we do not have an answer of how you scale from one team uh, to 50 teams well. And, you know, that's the same with data mesh, right? It, it's there to potentially solve a scaling problem, a decentralization problem. Now, if you're starting off small, uh, I still say pick up some of the patterns, right? Pick up some of the principles. They are valuable even with a small team. Um, and they may help you when you decide to scale. 
but they may not, right? You may have to change them. Uh, but they still have value, right? So just pick the ones that have valuable for your teams right now. Yeah, you know, one of the examples is in the data world, we used to have a thing called an ODS, an operational data store. So it was this idea of how do we not do an enterprise data warehouse, right? How do we not have to you know, collect the data, move it into a single place, transform it and combine it in place? How can we provide access to the data closest to that sort of system? And the interesting thing is often the ODS didn't solve our problem, right? Yes, it gave us access to the data next to the source system, but it still gave us the data the way the source system looked. And that the way it looked didn't help me answer my business questions. You know, one of the ones we'll see a lot of is what we call party entity, right? We'll see uh, an application that has a table that holds customer, supplier, and employees. Why do they do that? Well, they do that because, you know, in the old days, it was a really efficient way of storing data. Uh, from a pattern of software engineering, it's an efficient way of saying, you know, insert a record here and it. Uh, we can repeat that. But when you're using it from a data point of view, I've now got to say, well, how do I determine if that record is a customer, a supplier, or, or an employee? There's proven patents to do that in, in the enterprise data warehouse space. Um, but with the ODSs, we never really pushed it back, right? We never gave this idea of give me a list of customers, uh, give me a list of employees, right? And so, again, from a data mesh principle point of view, the idea of doing that, I think, has high value. If there's patents for that, they're, they're valuable. So implement those ones if you can. Yeah, uh, that was kind of what I was going to ask is is if you're a small team, like you're, we're talking about patterns. Patterns are, are, I mean, maybe it might even help to define a little bit more of exactly what you, you mean by pattern. But like, how do you also think about talking to teams about evaluating what patterns they should even try? Because I think this is where, People in data mesh think that they either have to go, you know, big bang approach and they have to get it all, they have to, to completely solve federated governance and they have to completely solve for all their domains. They have to just push all their domains to start publishing data products and they have to completely solve their data platform up front. And it's just like, no, we can iterate, iterate, iterate. But like, what, how do you talk to a team about evaluating a pattern and, and then, you know, whether they should try it or not? and then also evaluating whether it's working. Uh, so the interesting thing in the data space is most people come from a, an engineering background. They come from a problem-solving mindset. That's kind of why they get into the gig. So I don't tend to have to coach them on, on that behavior. You know, they're, they're used to being given crap data and problem-solving it to make it useful. So if we articulate that to them in the way they work and say, if you've got a crap process or a crap practice, then how are you going to fix it? Because, you know, there's some, it's just a pattern thing. Um, so as long as we can help them find some patterns, they will there and give them permission to experiment with them, then they will naturally do that. Uh, how do we know if it's working or not? That's the one that I haven't codified. I don't have a pattern for how we do that. It's a, I talk often about unconscious and conscious behavior. Um, when we can do something unconsciously, it has value. That's, it's based on our skills and our experience. We, we can then take that and consciously teach somebody else or coach somebody else to apply that. Then it has more value. Uh, so for me right now, the, the proving that the the pattern is adding value as an unconscious behavior. You know, the team know it's working. They can see the bottlenecks disappear. It feels like more fun. 
but I can't quantify it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, what is the value of having this data? It's like, well, we could do this one thing. Well, what's the value of, of doing that one thing? Well, we don't know because we haven't done it yet, but like, we think that the risk reward is there, but like it gets pretty squishy when you start to talk about ROI on data. People are like, well, but I want to know like what is the actual, what is this going to return? And some of it's like, we're making a bet, right? Like you have to make that bet and then see if it's working out. And, you know, there is some, you kind of have to trust that human intuition versus pure numbers as to is this working? So, yeah, and, and I differentiate uh, our technical practices from our ways of working. So, you know, if, again, if I go back to Agile and I go back to Scrum, in Scrum there's a forcing function for helping teams to iterate the way they work, and it's called a retrospective, right? Retrospectives run well is where the team sit down and says, this is what we did in the last iteration, you know, three weeks. Uh, this is what worked, and we'll keep doing it. This is what didn't work. So we need to change something. And here's the top three things we're going to experiment with to, to apply to see if, if we unblock some of those things that aren't working for us. So that retrospective process is a pattern. It's a forcing function to uh, help teams change the way they work and experiment with that. Uh, in the data space, you know, we can pick up some of the, the minimum viable product or the proof of capability process out of the software engineering world, right? The lean startup stuff. We can say, okay, we don't want to bore the ocean, right? We don't want to go and, and build a, a canonical model for the whole organization for nine months with a bunch of beardy weirdies sitting in a whiteboard in a little cupboard, not talking to any customer, anybody with subject matter expertise who then comes out with a massive enterprise um, relationship diagram that nobody understands and then wonders why it doesn't get implemented. Um, we, we can change it to say, how do we define an information product? How do we define a small set of value? How do we then break our work down into a small iteration that does some of that work and see if it has value? And if it does, let's build it out more. If it doesn't, let's throw it away. Uh, what's important is the context of the organization. Does the organization empower and allow their teams to work that way or not? And if they don't, then you've got some other problems to solve first before you actually uh, have the team in a safe place where they can experiment. Again, yeah. I, I, I go for startups, uh, tech-driven companies are based on experimentation, organizations that were founded 50 years ago and based on hierarchies. Experimentation is not in their corporate DNA. It's a massive change for them, and we have to be aware of that context. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking uh, with uh, a few people about this concept of what what do you need to do? What's your kind of like, you know, what what is your maturity level or what's your readiness assessment for implementing data mesh? And, you know, there are some vendors that are putting out readiness assessments, but it, I would guess that all of them are like, yes, you're ready for data mesh or here here's the flavor of data mesh that you should use. And it's like versus if you if you don't have that kind of agile capability, that agile mindset, is data mesh really for you right now or, or even ever? And if the answer is no, that's okay. Like that's, that's fine. Right. I, I had, um, Daniel Engberg from, um, Scandinavian airlines on the podcast. And we were talking about like in a traditional hierarchical company, how difficult it is even to, to create lasting cross-functional teams. 
And he said, you know, when the pandemic first hit and flights all got grounded, they um, created this cross-functional team that got something done in like six days that would have normally taken four months. And he's like, how do I, how do I reintroduce that juice? But also that, that you don't constantly just go for the cross-functional, cross-functional, cross-functional. What's the most impactful thing that these people can be doing right now if you're not working for, towards their career, right? If, if they're not going to have a good tr- career trajectory and a good like management structure, because if they don't have, you know, if, if they're just working on the problems at hand and you don't have somebody that's like, okay, you're a data engineer, we're going to work with you to, to have a good uh, career <laughs> progression for data engineering. Those people are going to leave sooner rather than later. So they don't stick there for five years and then they don't have that that good career trajectory. So like it's, it's always a balancing act, but I, I'm hearing exactly what you're saying. And, and I would love if we had a great way of changing those large organizations. But I think it is like, I mean, maybe just what I'm hearing is you really, really, really need all the high ends really bought up. Like all the people that are, if you're in a hierarchical structure, the people who make the decisions are the top level and you need them all really bought in that that change needs to happen and that you need lasting momentum towards it. Do you, do you have anything that you've seen with that helps there? So so ideally that's that's true, but factually it's not. Um, so I, I've, I've talked, you know, I, I do a, a, a Agile podcast, um, which is around Agile, not so much around the data space. And, and we've been lucky enough to have some guests in that um, – have been working in the agile space for quite a while, and there's there's some patterns coming out, right? So as we talk to people, I start to try and identify the patterns in my head, and there is in my head now there is patterns of organisations that have been you know started before 1990 uh, that are very hierarchical based, and they are incredibly difficult to change because it's Conway's law, right? The organisational structure is so embedded, and and one of the guests had this really nice way of, of saying it. They said that if you don't actually disrupt or, or rub out some of that organizational structure, um, it doesn't matter what you do, the corporate memory will rebound to replace that structure the way it was, right? So you have to do fundamental forcing um, factors somewhere to break something uh, to get that change to happen. And, and your airline example is a classic one for me. A crisis caused them to remove all the constraints and organizational structures and allow the teams to just get on and do the work with no boundaries is what I'm guessing. And so the teams did. Now, the question is, how do they then uh, adopt that pattern in the organization on an ongoing basis? So if I look at that, you know, I'd say if you don't have, if you're not one of those companies, don't try. But then I've spent eight years working with enterprises and teams in enterprises and seen it work. So we haven't changed the organization, right? What happens is as the data analytics team starts to scale out to the rest of the organization, they hit the organizational barriers, right? They hit a problem. Um, one of the patterns that's really important in that scenario is, is what I call the SHIT umbrella. If I'm working with a data analytics team in a large enterprise organization, uh, we, we need a pattern where there is a senior person of just above that team that is holding the rest of the organization back. They are running the the interference. So when somebody goes, uh, oh, yeah, you've got to go comply with this corporate governance and go through this architectural review, they work with the team to say, 
actually, we're going to do that, but we're not going to do that right now. The team need three months breathing space to get their patents in place, and then they'll present them to the architecture forum. Uh, we're not going to get anything in production. You know, we're, we're experimenting, but you know, we need to bring well-formed content. Um, and then sometimes what will work is we also say, if there's somebody on the architecture space that wants to be involved with the team to provide some coaching and mentoring and some some kind of federated governance and bring them in right and, and we'll work with them and and uh, uh you know do that and that helps so that pattern of uh data and analytics teams applying agile ways of working in large corporates has been successful but we do hit we hit some problems and one of the problems we hit is we we don't have influence over those source systems where we're collecting data from and so what happens those engineering teams or those vendors change the data structures and we have to adapt at the last minute because of that so again one of the principles i like about data mesh is that that merging of those two skills or teams and if we can make that work there'd be high value for that um, so a- another example is if we're working uh, in a batch or an iteration based and we're looking for self-organizing teams and, and cross-skill T-skills and, and removing the any barriers for that team to be successful, we, we end up blending the traditional business analyst role and the engineer role and the data architect role and the platform admin architect role, engineer role, to make sure that the team have all those skills in that one team. So if we take that pattern and we apply it to the data mesh principle, then what we need to take is all those data skills and move them into our application engineering teams, right? We're not putting a data engineer in an application engineering team. We're finding ways of making application engineers do the data work that we used to do for them. Um, Now, that's hard, right? Um, It's not a place that I've been lucky enough to work with a customer and experiment with. Love to. But, uh, yeah, I have no patterns on how you make that one work. One that I'm I'm seeing in a lot of places is that, yes, it would be great to have the most complex, complicated um, data products, but a lot of this is muscle building. And so, like, Nav has talked about this. Um, Sheetal Prathik talked about this, uh, kind of her general philosophy of, of building a lot of muscle, that you don't go for super, super complicated data products. So you can bring those application developers up to speed sooner because you're not making them learn very, very complex thing where, where there is this very uh, complicated way of transforming the data and, and really um, putting it into a very, very refined format. And so they don't need quite as much <laughs> data skills for the early data products or the early iterations of data products. Now, it does, might mean that you don't have, again, that same return on each data product, but you have a much lower investment in each data product. So is your time to return much lower? Is your return on investment higher? I, I don't know how that evolves in the long run. Can we get those application developers to a place where they can do all of that data work that you're talking about. I don't think so, but I think, you know, Max Schultz at Zalando talked about, they kind of had a similar model and there were domains that started to hire their own data engineers because they had complicated enough challenges to, to need that, but that it wasn't de facto. And I think 
to me, that's the one that makes the most sense of if you have specialty needs, you, you should go grab those. You should go find those and put those into the team. But in a lot of cases, you, it, you don't need to overcomplicate it that much. Is that actually a pattern that will stick? I have zero idea. It's very early, extremely early days. You know, Shemak uh, talked about in general, you want five to eight years. I think you've said the same thing for how long it takes to develop a pattern. Shemak's article came out less than three years ago, right? <laughs> so not, not only has, has the article about the theory of doing this not been out for five years, but people haven't really been doing it until maybe early 2021 was when we started to see some people really saying, we're going to start on our journey. So we've got another four to seven years before reusable patterns really emerge. And and like, how do we get people to, to head down those paths of to, to figure out what's going to work for them, even if they don't have a broad, broad applicable pattern? I have zero freaking idea. Um, and trying to ask you to just be like, can you solve all the data mesh problems? Is, it's a little bit much of a of a question, but yeah. So so let's unpack some of the twelve things that you bundled in that <laughs> in that problem. Um, so we have seen this before, right? We've seen this pattern repeated. So in the app development world, we used to have a pattern where application developers wrote code and testers tested it, and. We, we changed that, right? We we bought testing skills into our development skills. We Yes, we bought some technologies. We built, bought in TDD and BDD and ATDD, and we bought some automation. But what we did is we said, actually, our application developers with the right tools and training and, and language can pick up the testing skills and do that work at the same time. So why can't we do that with data? Now, one of the reasons that we can't at the moment is, is language. You know, whenever you go into a domain, whether it's a technical domain or you know, a lawyer domain or a, a medical domain, we get new language, and often that language is three-letter acronyms. It, it's complex. And so, you know, what do we do in data? We, we talk about a dimension. Uh, we talk about a slowly changing to type two dimension. We talk about a whole lot of technical words that are hard to understand. What happens if we change that language? What happens if we talked about the idea of a concept? Well, what do I mean by concept? Well, in an organization, we have a bunch of concepts. We have a concept of customer. We have a concept of product. We have a concept of order. What's the questions we typically get asked on day one? How many customers we got? What products did they buy? How many orders did we receive? And, and we underestimate the value of that data, right? We, we assume that the organization can actually answer those questions. And you go and look at them and actually nine times out of 10, they can't, or they definitely can't do it repeatedly. So um, we, we should change our language, right? We should focus on that. And that actually one of my frustrations with data mesh, one of the things that I do not like about it currently is the language that is used is... is it's hard for me to read and understand for some reason, right? It, it, it just doesn't gel with me personally. I read the words and I can kind of see some patterns and some terminology that I might be able to map to, but the words that are used just they they're great with me. I can't I can't gel, I can't, you know, I can't align for some reason. And maybe it's me, but but I think there are some other people out there. 
So if we can change the language, if we can make the language more accessible and we can map that language to what software engineers do, then we may be able to give them those skills. Um, again, like I said, I think we should share patterns. Uh, and, and we talked about this be, before the call, but you know, uh, there is a, a, a pattern called um, BEAM, um, Business Event Analysis and Modeling. It is a, a, a written by a guy called Lawrence Kaur, who's published a book on it. It's a pattern that I've used for eight years. It's probably the pattern I've had the most successful with that is not a technology pattern. Um, and it really is simple because you talk to a stakeholder and you say, who does what? You know, who's involved in your core business processes? Customers. What do they do? They buy products. Cool. When they buy a product, what's the term do you use for that? You know, what are they doing? Oh, they're ordering a product. Great. What else do they do? Our oh, customers pay for products. Okay. Do they? Oh, actually, no, customers pay for orders. Okay, there we go. Customer pays for orders. What else happens? Oh, stores ship orders. Do they? Oh, actually, no, they ship products because we might do partial shipments. Cool, we've got some complexity in there. What happens next? Oh, customer returns order. Do they? Oh, no, customer returns product. Cool. So now what we know is we've got a whole lot of problems to solve in the data world. What happens when an order is partially shipped and then part of the, you know, a product's returned, but the payment's for the full order? We can start seeing that, but we also now have a shared language. So we can say to the, the application developers, can you give me an API where I can get a list of customers? Yes, cool. Can you give me an API where I get a count of customers? Yes, great. Can you give me an API that gives me that core business process? Give me all the orders that were, all the products that were ordered. Give me all the orders that were paid, right? And so we can start having the shared language. And so that goes to the other thing. Uh, so, so to come back to that, so what we're asking for is not to be given data exhaust, right? Not be given access to the data the way the application has been written because that makes sense for the application. We've been asking to be given access to data as a product, something that has a shared language that we can all look at and nod and go, I understand what you're talking about. And so now we can do the rest of the hard work. And if I break it back to the second, one of the other points you had in there is that means we can then actually just create a data product or an information product, as I call it, that is how many customers have we got, right? Do that first. If you're starting from scratch, answer that one question. Now, not because answering that question is hard, but the the muscle memory, the way of working, all the processes and patterns and practices that you have to put in place to give your stakeholder a count of customers where the value is. Now, the trick there is, again, we go back to that, uh, that umbrella. You need somebody in your organization that's going to give you permission to spend some time on the way, on, on iterating the way you work, where the one thing they see coming out of it is, well, they'll see two things, actually. They'll see a physical counter customer, right? And they'll see a team that's actually enjoying and iterating the way they work. Uh, and that's where the value is, right? But we need permission to be able to do a small piece. And, and that's hard, right? Because everybody's going, you know, a number of times we'll go, we want to implement Scrum because we want to deliver more faster. And then the conversation should be, but you know it's going to take at least three months before the team are up to what we call velocity, if we're lucky. So are you okay that, you know, these three months of experimenting before you, you see the work getting done? And worse, the stuff that they used to do is not going to get done anymore. We're going to make it worse for a while. Slow down to speed up. Slow down to speed up. Um, I, yep. I do actually want to go back to the thing you said about 
the language around data mesh. I like when I was first learning about data mesh, I was struggling, and and that's why I recommend people watch like a, a few of Jamak's old videos because I think it goes through the exact thought process because the the written stuff is in a a way that is very very technically sound but it's not in a language that as somebody who is kind of new to the data space I didn't really understand a lot of it I, I can go back and and you know every read through I get um, incremental data points but it's it's even tough for me to absorb all of it because it's so densely packed with information I've never been able to read through one of the the kind of two, posts on the Martin Fowler site in one read through. It's it's too much dense information that's coming in my way. And that's why that's why I'm doing the podcast. That's why I'm, you know, I'm I'm looking to kind of reboot the meetups and stuff is that we do need to make this approachable um and kind of uh one thing that I I tell everybody is uh, and kind of your central point that I think that you've been talking about is do stuff with intentionality and with purpose. Don't do it because you want to do it. Like don't don't do data mesh for the sake of data mesh. I literally tell people, put in your in your documentation, control find replace data mesh with unicorn farts. And people are like, that's so stupid. It's like, no, because you know that you won't ship that to anybody outside of the, the data organization if you do that, because you know that you will take out the phrase data mesh, because it doesn't matter how you are doing this as long as it, it it is repeatable and scalable and and like that it's got sound foundations it doesn't matter if you end up going data mesh or not data mesh if it can solve what you're trying to solve and and i think that's that's a, a lot of a central point that that you've you've been making throughout a lot of this if if i'm summing you up in in a, in a lot of ways um if you, if you want to add anything there, I, I did have one thing that I really wanted to, to hit on as well, was, which was your view of proof of concept. But I would love to, if, if you've got anything to kind of respond to that. Uh, so I've got a question. Well, the, the, the question that I can't answer is, why has Data Mesh got market share in terms of noise and brand and Data Ops never did? So for me, uh, yeah, a lot of the patterns of Data Mesh are the same patterns we look for in Data Ops. You know, data ops was uh, the idea of taking DevOps and a whole of the actual agile software engineering practices and applying it to data. Um, I, I'm really interested in that. Somehow, the data mesh word, the brand, you know, the the concept has taken off like big data did. And uh, yeah, so for me, I'm with you. Unicorn farts all the way, but we're going to see data mesh for the next couple of years, right? We're going to see some people do some bad things with it, and we already started to see that. What I'm asking is that uh, for the people that are out there that are already applying those patterns and practices, and you know, one thing I love about your podcast is you're bringing people on and go, "Hey, we've been doing data mesh for years. You know, we struggled, and here's what we've done." And you look at it and you go, "Yeah, you're applying a principle of self-service. You're applying a principle of." domain or subject area, you know, eating the elephant, don't boil the ocean, you know, you're applying the principle in some ways of uh, decentralizing teams, but still providing a right level of governance. Um, so if everybody shares their patterns and practices and calls them unicorn farts, that'd be great. If they call it data mesh, that's fine. But, you know, share the pattern and practice, share the how. 
not yeah. not the why, right? How did you do it? You know, how can I take that? And what was the context? And you know, help me implement that with the next customer I'm working with. That's where the value to me is. And and what did you try that didn't work? Like the Andy patterns, I think are almost more important right now than than even the patterns emerging. Of we tried this and it didn't work. So. Um, but yeah, and, uh, and I can tell that you're a catalog and cocktails listeners because of how often you say boil the ocean. I think Juan, Juan <laughs> says that like all the time too. So. Yeah. And, and, and my other favorite one, all roads lead to Austin. Um, but so you've got an interesting, um, idea around proof of concept. So, you know, people who are trying to get started with, with data mesh. Um, had Paul Andrew on um, a, a little bit ago, and he was kind of talking about kind of why he thinks that proof of concepts are are BS as well. But I would love to hear kind of your 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 thoughts, and then I can kind of intertwine his thoughts and kind of where my thoughts have evolved on this. Yeah, so I'm not a great fan of proof of concept as a term anymore. Uh, I think we have done bad things to that language. Uh, so for me, I think there is two two core contexts where we want to do some proof. One is uh, we have a high level of uncertainty, right? We have some hypothesis, some theories of what might work, but we know that we really can't find a lot of patterns in the same context that we have. And so before we invest in you know in doubling down and and trying to build that into the way of the work. It has value if we do some a little bit of work up front to prove that our hypothesis is right or wrong. And that's an experimentation framework. So what we should do is we should be very clear about what our hypothesis is. We should be very clear about the steps we think we're going to take to prove or disprove the hypothesis. And we should... Um, be very clear about how we're going to measure whether it was successful or not, whether we're going to carry on investing. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I have an hypothesis that I can take the transformation rules from an enterprise data warehouse, uh, and with modern technology, I can encapsulate those as virtual code, and I can apply that on streaming data, and in certain contexts, I think I can provide a data warehouse-like access to that data in near real time. Now, that is a high-risk hypothesis. There's a whole lot of technical moving parts that I have not proven will actually work together. So if I was going to double down on that as a product or a customer, I would want to spend a small amount of time doing that. And in the agile terms, we often call that a research spike. in, In my startup, we call it a mix spikey. Um, but what we do is we say we have this amount of time and this amount of money or people, right, to prove or disprove the hypothesis as much as we can. And at the end of that, we will decide whether we're going to carry on with it or not. So that's one context. The second context is the idea of minimum viable or minimum valuable, right? So what we say is, look, we could do uh, a whole lot of work for six months and deliver this thing of beauty. But we're not sure that actually it has value. So again, what can we do to break our work down into smaller chunks to prove the value earlier? Um, And so let's do that, right? And that's a minimum viable. Now, minimum viable doesn't mean it's crap, right? It doesn't mean it's, it's, it's play. It is production, right? It is usable. We're just reducing the things we're delivering to reduce the amount of time it takes before we get in front of a customer to see if it has value. 
And sometimes we can we can use that that context, that pattern of minimum viable for lots of things. So one of the ones that I see a lot of enterprises do is we we have this idea of uh, lifetime value, right? So lifetime value is the idea that uh, you have customers that come to you and it costs you money to find that customer and onboard that customer to your company. And then uh, that customer pays for things over time, right? So their lifetime value goes up. And we want to determine some customers give us longer, you know, better lifetime value than other customers, and therefore they're the ones we should go after. But if you think about that and you look at the way we build that out, it's a, based on a bunch of patterns. So we have to understand what our revenue from our customers are, and we have to understand what our cost for a customer is. Uh, we have to understand what our profitability or a margin for each customer is. We have to understand how long a customer is likely to stay with us, their behavior based on potentially other customers. Each one of those little moving parts, those Lego blocks, has value. Right, So if we go in and bore the ocean and say, I'm going to give you lifetime value, but it's going to take me two years, go away in two years, come back to me, and I'll give you the answer. We tend not to get funded, right? It's too long. The organization has changed. But if we say we're going to break that puppy down, right? And so we're going to go and uh, really quickly do minimum viable product on uh, revenue per customer. Yeah, And you can use that information. And once you're happy with that, you know, it's good enough, we'll go and do cost per customer, right? And then we're going to go and give you margin per customer. If we do those into little Lego blocks, we have more success. We get more feedback. Uh, we change the, the, once we've done revenue, we've learnt lots, right? And we apply that learning and that knowledge to doing cost, right? We iterate the way we work. Uh, we get a better feedback loop. That's what we're looking for, right? So proof of concept, uh, We've done bad things to it because what we talk about now is I'm going to do really ad hoc process to get something dodgy out the door really quickly to prove the concept that I can deliver something. And then nine times out of 10, the stakeholder will turn around and go, cool, you've given me the counter customers. Thank you. What's next? And we go, no, no, hold on. The, the amount of technical debt in that thing, right? That, that was just a proof of concept. You know, we got to go spend six months to make it right. And the stakeholder goes, oh, so the numbers aren't right. Oh, no, the numbers are kind of right. Well, we haven't really tested them. But, yeah, but, but it was just a proof of concept. And, and you know, it, yeah, I, I don't like it anymore. So for me, experimentation, that we have something that's high risk and we want to de-risk it, or chunking it down into smaller chunks that are production ready, are they just minimum viable products? That, for me, is patterns that work. Well, and I think if you're doing, uh, you know, uh, talking about minimum viable mesh, that was kind of the the thing that uh, Paul was even talking about was um, that if you're trying to do a proof of concept in data mesh, what a lot of people are doing is a proof of concept around the data set, not even as a data product, not even can we put out a product, it's can we hit that data set, exactly what you talked about, right? Of this is the answer to the question as of today, but can we reproduce it? Can we can we scale it? Can we actually treat this like a product? And so, you know, are you putting out a proof of concept around actually putting out, you know, putting a single data set together or, you know, a couple of data sets that you're combining together? Or are you doing a proof of concept that you're actually able to put out data products and so that you have something that is repeatable, that is kind of what you talked about of like scaling that down in that second type of, of proof of concept? Or 
are you having a minimum viable mesh, right? Like not just that you've got data products, but that you've got something that is minimum viable for actually creating additional data products. And like the proof of concept around a data set might be three, six weeks. The proof of data or proof of concept around data products might be, you know, eight to 12 weeks. And the proof around kind of that minimum viable mesh might be 12 to 18 weeks. And like, is it valuable to do that, that first type of getting to a proof of concept that you can have that data set when it's just going to end up kind of like all your other data assets of these orphaned things that are really, really hard to keep maintaining and that aren't really treated like a product and all of that. So I'm, I'm like, it's funny because when you and I first talked about doing this episode and I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I just keep using the phrase proof of concept, but I think it's a getting started strategy and a minimum viable, uh, whatever you want to call that P is that, uh, product is that platform is that minimum viable, whatever. I think that is a better approach because so many people are going to set themselves up to go down these bad paths by trying to get to a data set to answer a question, but that you can't actually bring that reuse, not just that you can reuse that same data in other data products, but that you can actually go back, that it's a wellspring, that you didn't go and, and take all the water. You can go back and fill up your your water bucket because that that information is able to continuously flow. So but I just, I mean, that's kind of what I've been thinking is that I would love to get your reaction if I'm just talking crazy sauce or, or what. Uh, so the underlying pattern of chunk your work down to smaller bits of work that get value out quicker and we get a feedback loop so we can change the way we work next time, that is where the value is. The idea of a proof of concept for mesh, uh, I'm going to call bollocks on that because mesh ain't a thing. It, 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 it's a bunch of ideas and principles and patterns that have value if you put them together. Um, what would I do? What I would probably pick up one of the patterns uh, out of somebody like Amazon or or that, which uh, there's a bunch of patterns for describing the value you're going to deliver early without doing the work, right? So there's, there's an idea of a press release, right, where we write a one-pager, which is the, the press release, the sales document of what we delivered at the end of our, our experimentation or end of our change that, that we're working on. Um. So I'd do that, right? So if I think about what you said, there was a bunch of value statements in there, right? Are we are we experimenting on the way we're working to see if we can grab some data from a source system and, and do a thin slice all the way through to something where we give that information to a stakeholder and it has value? Is that what we're proving, right? Is that what we're working on and we're trying to trying to iterate on that? So write that down, right? Write that down as a press statement, right? Our, our proof is that uh, we can take a piece of data from, from one of our data exhausts and provide information to a stakeholder in a way that has value, yeah? And, and they love it. And then go and prove that, right? And then bake that process in, right? You've done a small slice. You've done a small piece of work, a, a small bunch of patterns that you're going to use in the future. Is our proof that um, the thing we want to experiment with that we can decentralize our teams, 
right? That we, instead of having, you know, a centralized data team that does all this work, we can break them up into smaller pod squads, whatever you want to call it, and decentralize them outside of that one team, you know? Now, it doesn't have to be against the software engineering team. It could be out into finance, and then another one's out into HR. So let's write the press release, right? Uh, we used to have centralized teams, and everything took six months, and nobody knew who to talk to. You know, we've changed the way we work to decentralize, and now we have those those data people sitting next to the domain experts, those subject matter experts, and now we have quicker feedback loops and quicker delivery, right? And that's what we're aiming for. And now how are you going to experiment with the way you work? What patterns are you going to use to see if you've achieved that goal? So for me, that has value, right? But that's not a proof of concept. A proof of concept in my head, the language now means a vendor or a team are going to come and do something really quick and really dodgy that's not sustainable to prove they can get the money to carry on. And uh, I'm not a fan of that anymore. Yeah. I, I, and I think we're kind of, it's one of those things again about what, what language do you use versus what intentionality. And that's, that's kind of the semantics of exactly, you know, I wrote down, what are you really trying to prove? If you're doing a proof of concept, what are you actually trying to prove? Are you trying to prove that you, that you, we have the capabilities to actually move forward with implementing data mesh or not, right? Like, is, the, is that what you're trying to prove or are you trying to prove out, you know, oh, we can find places where there's value if we created more, uh, you know, easily accessible and usable data? Of course there is, right? Like, so what are you really trying to prove and what's that that output? So, and and. I really love the, so for me, I use the term proof of capability now, right? And I know it's a semantic difference between proof of concept. Um, and I was just, I've just finished working with a customer where we use that term. And what we, and just like you said, what we talk about is what capability are we trying to prove we can build and how do we prove we have built it, right? And if we can document those two things at the beginning, then doing that work has value, right? We now have a framework of, what are we aiming for and how do we know we achieved it? How do we know that capability is there? And then we should also bake in some form of maturity, right? Um, at what level of maturity is that capability? Because we don't want to overinvest in it, right? We may have a, a, a light version of that capability and then we may iterate and, and bake in, you know, a higher level of maturity of that capability in the future and that's okay. We can reiterate those iterate on those capabilities we should right we should pick them up and make them better where they cause us a problem so yeah proof of capability i'm on board for that one yeah i, I agree i think that's that's a good framing for it so um so we've covered you know a, a lot of different things in this conversation in, in the last hour but um is there any kind of way that you would kind of sum it up or any kind of parting advice that you would give to folks and say, you know, this is what you really, this is what you've got to do, whether you're thinking about data mesh or even just agile and, and applying that to data in general or. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's a few takeaways for me that I think uh, patterns that I've seen that are successful. So first pattern is empower your teams, give them the ability to change the way they work, support them in that, in that power uh, and let them get on with their job. But, you know, people are good people. If you give them the the bandwidth to do what is right, uh, they will go and do good things. Uh, the second thing is, you know, let's. Uh, I wish we'd stop vendor washing and methodology washing data mesh 
I don't think it's going to happen. I think we, we've got another wave of big data bollocks coming, which is sad. Um, so maybe all we can do is every time a vendor tells us uh, they've got a data mesh pattern is uh, we ask them to show us their patterns. You know, um, was it Tom Cruise and Moneyball? Yeah, show me the money. Why don't we just start yelling, show me your patterns? And if they can't articulate a pattern that makes sense, then, you know, yeah, how much substance is under the covers? And last one, uh, we should share patterns, right? Uh, if we have something that works in a certain context, it, it, it helps the data domain if we can share those uh, in a way that somebody else can pick them up and experiment with them. Uh, we can accelerate their, their ability to do good things with data. So for me, you know, those if we could achieve those three things in the next 12 months, I'd be a, a happy man. Yeah, that's that's the uh, I, I talked about when I first founded the community stuff. I was like, I think in eighteen months we'll have all this information about the patterns and all that. And you know, we're we're uh, a year and a couple of months in, and I'm like, twenty four months from now we'll. Have so is it like you know another twelve months from now that'll be thirty six months from now we'll have the pattern? But yeah, I, I I think we really owe it to each other to share information about what's working. I think that's, that's really valuable and helpful and, and what's not working, right? Like be, be okay that, Hey, you went down a path that didn't work. That's our, that's totally okay. This stuff is bleeding edge. Somebody's going to get cut. You saying, Oh, I, I got, you know, cut, but I uh, ended up in a, in a better place. Great. Like that's a great story to tell and, and people will, will highly appreciate you for telling it. So, um, I did want to give you uh, some space as well to, to talk a little bit about what, what the company does. And, you know, if, if people want to follow up with you, whether about agile data, about the company, like all of that, uh, would just kind of love to, to hear what you want people following up with you about it included into that kind of uh, what, what the company's doing and, and what you'd like to have people kind of talk to you about. Yeah, so um, from a from a startup point of view, you know, AgileData.io, we're, we're building out you know a, a platform and a way of working that re- reduces the complexity of of data in a simply magical way. Um, the way I think about it is is our goal in life is to remove the role of a data engineer for eighty percent of all the data problems in the world. We've seen that pattern before. You know, the example I use is WordPress. Uh, you know, a lot of websites, over 50% of the websites in the world are based on WordPress. And they've made, you know, that complex creation of websites simple. Now, not everybody uses WordPress, right? There's still a need for software engineers that build gorgeous, beautiful, unique websites, right? But not everybody wants one of those and, and can't afford the cost or the time to do it. So that's kind of what we're aiming at. Um, but from a, from a data mesh point of view, um, I think, the call out I have is we have a website called Well, so well.agiledata.io, where I try and share the patterns that I have seen other teams do in the data space. Uh, it's one of those things that you know you never have enough time to write up the the patterns. You know, you ask everybody else to do it, and then you you try and make time yourself. So the call out for me is, uh, you know, there's a, a, a form on the front of that page, and it basically says, "Ask me a question." Uh, and the reason it does that is what I found is if there is actually somebody I'm talking to who has a problem that I can write a pattern up or a series of patterns that may help, then I tend to do it. 
Um, so yeah, reach out, go onto that website, type in the problem you want solved. And then uh, if I can, I'll write up some patterns on there and send it back to you and say, here's some stuff that I've seen other teams try that worked. Here's some anti-patterns, uh, fill your boots and let me know how you go. So uh, yeah, help, help me share more patterns. Yeah. Uh, and I'll drop uh, links to that in the show notes. And then uh, another good way I think you'd said as well is, is LinkedIn is a good way to reach out as well. Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I tend to, to be active on there in a, in, in a semi-positive slash negative, uh, <laughs> partially sarcastic, sometimes grumpy way. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you want to talk to me, reach out to me on one of those two things and, and I will respond. I think that's a, a good way of describing my own uh, social media presence as well. <laughs> I I, tr- I wish I were the, the person that's just always very, very positive and happy, but it's like, you know, sometimes you just got to say, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, go go to the corner. You're in timeout. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to say, I, I do like the fact that you hold people to account and I do like the fact you do it in such a polite way. So, <laughs> so big ups to you for both of those things. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Shane, this has been uh, really, really awesome, really helpful. I think uh, a lot of this stuff is going to help people really start to think about how they should be approaching just data projects in general and like the mindset methodology and like so much of what data has been has been trying to throw technology at the problems and trying to overly lock on this, we have to get it all right up front or it's, it's never going to be valuable. It's never going to work versus the, the iterative process. So I think getting people comfortable with that is, is a great mission in general. And I think you've provided a lot of useful information. So I want to thank you for the, the time today. And, and also thank you, uh, everyone out there for listening. Excellent. It's been fun. And we'll catch you all later. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Shane Gibson, who's a co-founder and the chief product officer at Agile Data IO, as well as an Agile Data Coach. As per usual, you can find his contact information as well as the links he had mentioned in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.